Hey, good morning. How's it going? <laughs> it's good to be with you. It's December 18th. You know, I was writing an email this week and I thought, I can feel like it was just weeks ago where I was saying, can you believe it's already 2022? Surprise, we're like two weeks away from it being 2023. I was uh, reflecting on this, not to just riff on the year, but you guys remember Y2K? Remember that? I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I remember the world was definitely ending. Mom, did you buy canned food goods? Did you? Do we have a basement? I don't think we do, but if we do, how do you get in it? That's, that just seems like just a, a couple years ago, does it not? And here we are, it's going to be 2023, but God is good. God is good to, to lead us into 2023. God is good to, to direct our path and to create in us the people that walk out as disciples of Jesus. So this morning, uh, I know that it's Christmas season. I know that our theme is great joy, and it is my great joy to finally wrap up our Hebrew series this morning. We've been at it for, uh, I think, 15 or 16 weeks, and this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. How many of you are excited to end Hebrews? Okay, some of you just like it a lot. I, uh, I have good news. We're going to just continue right in the New Testament after Christmas. We're going to just go verse by verse through the book of James next. If, if you're a James lover, I know there's many of you. That's for you. Hey, this morning's message is, uh, it's an awesome one. And I got to tell you a couple things that I've discovered along the way this week. I think the, the primary thing that I've discovered this week is, is this, is that Hebrews 13, as we read it, it's not overly difficult to preach just to be honest with you. There's not a whole lot in there that just leaves you scratching your head and thinking like, wow, God, you're really going to have to show up. You're really going to have to direct my study. It's, it's pretty basic. It's pretty laid out. And so it's not a difficult message to preach, but it is a difficult message to live out. How many of you have, uh, feel like, I understand theology, I understand some philosophy, I understand the concepts of God, and then I put my feet on the ground and I try to live it out, and sometimes I don't even make it to the coffee pot before I just totally blow it. Anyone feel that way? So this morning, after 12 chapters of this kind of brilliant arguing and arguing a case for Jesus being better, for Jesus being the, the Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures, for, for all of these beautiful arguments for the first century world, the author of Hebrews turns to us and answers this question, what should we do about it? What are the first steps? How many of you are like, I got the information, now I want to know, like, what should I do next? Not tell me what to do, we're not trying to create tell me what to do people, but God has shaped something in us for 12 chapters, and now the author tells us, here are some of the things that you can do to walk this out. And so we're going to talk about some of those things. I think there are six or seven ways that I, I think uh, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that we can walk this out. Before we do, I want to give you a couple of reminders. The first one is this, is that this book of Hebrews is written to the... Hebrews, wow, smart, smart group we got here. Uh, it's written to this group of people, and they are, they are Jewish in upbringing and in culture. You know that. Now, these people, sometimes we look back and we make a mistake and we, we say this, and, and I understand where it's coming from, but we say the early Christians. But there's a problem with that statement, and here's why. These people didn't see themselves as Christians, and that's going to be important this morning. Because what they saw themselves is they saw themselves as true Jews, they saw themselves as the people who followed the Torah in the entire Old Testament, and they believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so they believed that they were actually living out the true Jewish faith. The one Jew that I know for sure is in the room is nodding her head emphatically, so I think I got that right. 
We're friends, by the way. So if you're new here and you're like, whoa, he just calls people out like that from the stage, I don't. <laughs> it's Phyllis. And so these people are rooted and, and they're still living in the place that they grew up, the place that raised them. And now they're proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And guess what? Not all of their family members, not all of their community members are on board with that kind of a statement. And so there is pushback. There is cultural pushback. There is resistance to that type of message. And the book of Hebrews is written to encourage and instruct people who are living in that kind of situation. How many of you would say you're living in a situation right here, right now, where there is a culture that seems like it has surrounded you and is pushing in on you, and sometimes it is difficult to speak about Jesus, let alone live for him? All right. I guess it's way harder for me than some of you. The second thing is this. Sometimes we bring our culture to the Bible. Our culture is a culture of me and I, and everything is about me, me, me. And so sometimes we can read the Bible and we can think, what is it saying to me? Now, I think that's a brilliant question, and we should always ask that question. But I think the question we have to ask first is, what is it saying to we? Because Hebrews is not written to an individual person. It's written to a community that's saying, all of you are facing this pressure. How do you live together as God's people? How do you encourage each other and exhort one another? How do you push one another on in a difficult time? And I don't know about you, but I think without the we, it's going to be difficult for there to be a Christian me. The support system is, is just absolutely essential to who we are. And so I think both of these things are going to play themselves out this morning, but I want to make sure that we're on the same page. So I got one question for you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. We have it on the screen if you'd like to follow along, or if you're just old school and you like a printed copy, I encourage that as well. Let brotherly love continue. Just leave that on the screen for a second. Okay, this is awesome. This doesn't happen often. Anybody have any understanding whatsoever of the Greek language? Anybody like ever studied it or anything? Anybody know what the word is for brotherly love? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. It's literally the book of the chapter 13 of Hebrews opens this way. Philadelphia. It, it means brotherly love. Isn't that awesome? I don't know about Philadelphia literally being the city of brotherly love, but that's what it's named after. And so this is what he says. The first thing he says is, okay, I'm going to give you some instruction. Let your brotherly, many of you have different translations, maybe the love of a brother or a sister, let it continue. Here's the idea. This type of love is a familial love. It's the type of love that you experience in your home. Uh, just a, a few months ago now on September 20th, my wife and I welcomed our second child into the world. And man, if you've ever experienced this feeling, the, the second a baby is put in your arms, you understand what familial love means, don't you? You understand what it means, like I would literally give myself to protect this little tiny bundle of a human being. That is the love that the author of Hebrews wants us to know right from the beginning. Let it continue. He says it's already begun among you, let it continue. And so here's my encouragement for you. How many of you would say brotherly or sisterly love is present here at Bridge Community Church? Let it continue. Continue meeting together. Continue to have real conversations and share real life. Because if it continues, we have laid the foundation for how we live out our faith in Jesus. Verse 2 says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
Some of you may recall, I think it's um, Genesis, somewhere in the teens. Abraham is sitting at his tent. You remember the story? And uh, these three strangers show up, and it's kind of a sketchy situation. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and Abraham has a couple choices he could potentially make. The, the choice he makes is, hey, come on in. I want to give you water. I want to give you food. I want to make you feel comfortable and accommodated. Rest your body. And what is he doing? He's actually showing hospitality to angels. And so the author of Hebrews picks up on this, and he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now I want to pause for a second. I want to paint you a picture. The book of Hebrews is kind of contended when it was written, but it doesn't really matter when it was written because something is going on in the early world, in the early first century, no matter when it was written. And here it is. To be a Christian is dangerous business. To be a follower of Jesus is dangerous. Do you know that? It's why that many of these churches are meeting late, late at night. They're meeting underground. They're meeting in homes. They're secretly uh, uh, scribing out the scriptures and passing them along, trying to reproduce them because they get burned. People get thrown in prison. People get beaten. People get killed for this faith in Jesus. Now, in the first century, the idea of hospitality is something that's absolutely central to who people are. But there is a temptation if you are a follower of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 13, and here's the temptation. Somebody comes knocking on your door late at night and say, says, hey, can you, can you help me? Can you welcome me in? There might be a temptation for you to say, wait a second. They're after people like me. Maybe this is somebody who works for the Roman government. Maybe this is a spy. Maybe this is somebody who's trying to map out where all the Christians are so they can come get us all. And so there's a temptation to say, no. Hospitality ends because we need to protect and preserve ourselves. Are you following with me? And so there's this temptation to say, I don't want to let anyone in. I want to keep everyone at arm's distance. We'll just do our church body thing, but we'll be really uh, suspicious of anybody from the outside that wants to come in. The author of Hebrews says, that can't happen. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Is there danger involved? Absolutely yes. He says it doesn't matter. And by the way, if you need encouragement, here is a history lesson for you. You will recall that Abraham once showed hospitality to people, and it wasn't people, it was angels. And then I love verse 3. It says this, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. I think this is what he's saying. If you're going to uh, accept people, if you're going to show hospitality to them, is there a possibility that they could have your worst interest in mind? They could be after you. They could persecute you. They could say, oh, you're a Christian. Burn his Bible and throw him in prison. Is that possible? He says, that's okay, because I also want you to make sure you visit each other in prison. I was reading this week, and um, I could find a, a source for you if you're interested in this, but uh, I think around the year 210 A.D., a group of Christians in a severely persecuted area got thrown in prison in mass, and many of them were physically ill. Some of them were elderly and old. Some of them were beaten to the point where they were going to die, and they just get thrown into prison. And a first century prison is a, a terrible place to be. There's no running water. There's not even like that little cubicle toilet they show you in prison documentaries on Netflix. Nothing like that. There's little to no food. The only way you get food is if somebody cares about you enough to visit you and bring it to you. If you're not a citizen, you're just assumed to be uh, guilty until proven innocent. And oftentimes you go decades without even the ability to prove your innocence. 
And so a group of Christians thought, well, I, I've heard that many of my brothers and sisters in Christ have been locked up. And so do you know what they did? They pooled their money, they bribed prison guards, and they said, can we sleep in prison with them? Can we tend to their wounds to make sure that they're okay? Would it be okay if you let us in and out of the prison every day and every night so that they know that they're not alone? And guess what? Prison guards take bribes in the first century, so they said yes. <laughs> and so the author of Hebrews tells us, don't forget. He says in the second part of that verse, don't forget those who are mistreated. Why? Because you're also in the body. He says their mistreatment should feel like you are being mistreated. If brotherly love and sisterly love is among you, when they are mistreated, it feels like you are mistreated, and so you react in that way. If you're taking notes, uh, I just have some takeaways along the way. I don't have like one big aha at the end, but here's where my thoughts go. I think the first thing that I, I pick up on is this, is how we engage people matters. I think as our culture pushes in, we're about to talk about the culture kind of like full steam ahead in the next chunk of scripture here. But as the, the culture kind of pushes in and, and we become even more and more of a minority position, you know that Christians are now totally in the minority. We're just seen kind of blanket as weird and strange. You guys know cancel culture. I always joke that a uh, straight white pastor at a church, you can't cancel me twice. I've already been canceled. But that is the culture we live in. And there's a temptation to say, let's insulate ourselves. Let's not engage with the outside world because it's dangerous. And so I, I think the first thing Hebrews wants us to know is this. It is dangerous, but we have to make a choice. Will we insulate ourselves and protect, uh, to be protective? Or will we remain open to receive people well? No matter what their motivations or their intentions are, we just say, this is the house of God. It's for you. I will open myself up to you, even if it ends up biting me in the butt. That's how I'm going to live my life. The next verse, verse 4, if I can flip my outline here, says this. By the way, uh, if you're not awake yet, you should wake up because um, we're about to talk about sex and money. Um, I feel like if it was a thing, rock and roll would be in here too, but it wasn't invented yet. So, <laughs> Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I'll just pause right there. Woo. Going verse by verse through scripture is sometimes a challenge because there's these, these chunks where you're like, I'd rather just skip over it. But we're not going to skip over it. So here's the deal. In the ancient world, especially in the Jewish world, marriage is just an assumption. Okay, so I understand that our culture is not the same as the ancient world's culture, but here's the, the deal. If, if you were an adult male and an adult female, there was just an assumption that you would be married in the ancient world. It just is what it is. And so this is what the author of Hebrews wants you to, to hear. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, why would the author want us to know that it needs to be held in honor because it was probably being dishonored. So let's talk about what the word honor means. The word honor in Greek is just simple. It just means something very valuable, precious, something of uh, worth a great price. And so the idea is this, is that marriage should be treasured among the body of Christ. It, it should be a, an ideal of a, a relationship. And this is not a knock on people who are not married or people who are divorced at all. This is just saying that this is the building block of what culture is. Now, if you're confused, you're like, what does that even mean? Let, let me kind of paint it this way. Every culture for all time 
is dependent on something, and it's dependent on babies being born and being raised into it, right? Literally, without new people, there can't be evolution of culture. Are you following with me? The Bible, I think, is just going to say this, that a marriage between a man and a woman is the best place for a child to grow up and to learn the ways of God. The author of Hebrews says, because of that, we should just recognize that that is a core building block of a healthy, vibrant place of worship and a vibrant place that God wants to use to reflect his love to the world. When we look around here, how many of you are just so excited every time you're in worship and all of a sudden just all of these teenagers and kids start flooding in? How many of you love that? I think what Hebrews would say to us is, if you are a husband and a wife or one of your children is in here, we should hold you in high esteem. Why? Because what we're looking at is the generation that comes next. They are the future. Uh, in some ways, they are the future of the church. And we like to say here, they're not just the future, they're the now. But without them, we have no way uh, of teaching the culture of Jesus to anybody. Are you following with me? Okay, I think the next chunk kind of uh, uh, helps explain this a little bit better. And let, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, I want to kind of do a little dive here, because um, if you've heard me preach before, I think my greatest interests are kind of like in ancient culture, but also modern culture and how they collide. How many of you have uh, flipped on a TV or you have the internet? How about uh, in the last five years, anybody? Okay, so you've probably noticed something. How many of you drive in a motor vehicle? So you've seen a billboard, yeah? Uh, have you noticed anything about culture as it relates to sex? I can remember, I'm not that old. I'm gonna be 35 next month, January 14th, if you guys are birthday gift buyers. <laughs> just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I can remember watching TV and having the innuendos of sex right over my head because I had no idea. And then I went back like in college and watched old shows and thought like, oh my gosh, I totally didn't even catch that. How many of you would say there's very little innuendo anymore, it's just in your face all the time? What used to be on billboards in Las Vegas now reside on the 55 and the 91 freeway. That's just what it is. It's in your face. It's present. It's accepted at every turn. Sex has turned into a, I would say this, two-pronged, terrible, sinful thing that is uh, consumption and pleasure only. And so I think this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, and he's saying something that's been a temptation for, for men and women for generations. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. What he's saying is a first century Jewish innuendo that doesn't like to talk about sex, that this is for a husband and a wife only. Are you following with me? Why is he saying that? Because there's a temptation to slowly move away from that. In the first century, it was, in many circles, it was very common for, for men to, to have a wife at home and just say, you know what, I'm going to have a prostitute. And that became a, a common thing in many circles. And so here's the thing. I think in the world we're living in, we are up against this fight on culture around sex. I think the culture has moved into a majority position where they are now dictating what is moral and what is not moral. Have you noticed that? I can remember a time before I was a Christian where I would have said to maybe a high school classmate who was a follower of Jesus, you know what, I don't believe all that stuff, but it, it seems like you're living a pretty moral life. I would have said that. Now I think teenagers are growing up and they're looking at Christians and saying that's immoral. 
That's repressive. Why would you wait until marriage? Why would you have boundaries? Because it's all about me, me, me. Are you following this? And so I think unless we get on the same page and we recognize what God's call to our lives is, we don't have any ground to stand on and say, this is what we stand for. And I think this is what the author of Hebrews would say we stand for. We stand for a sexual ethic that is honorable because, um, where did I put this in my notes? Because there is a sense of bonding, there is a sense of oneness, there is a sense of unity, and by that we bring up children in the world. The culture that we live in, this hookup culture that we live in, says things like Christians are missing out, Christians are old school, they're repressive. I heard a, a quote on the news not long ago that uh, Christians who live by this ethic are just bound to land in therapy one day because it's going to mess them up so badly. And so there's a culture war that is being fought. How many of you have seen this happen? Now, this is why I think Hebrews wants to talk about marriage and then the wedding or the marriage bed because children are involved. If we don't raise children in this way, they will be raised in a culture that tells them, do whatever you want as long as it feels good and you don't hurt anybody, you're going to be fine. The author of Hebrews says, if you want to live out this faith that I've been telling you about for 12 chapters, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to figure out the most divisive issues, money and sex, and you've got to be able to teach it to children. It's pretty heavy. So let's talk about uh, money. Would that be okay with you? <laughs> Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I, uh, I find this super easy because it seems like in the ancient world, people struggled with materialism and vanity. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be a major issue here in Orange County. <laughs> we all know what Hebrews is saying. You guys know what Hebrews is saying? It's saying you should not fall in love with money. How many of you know that in your head to be true? How many of you, no show of hands, but maybe just like a subtle nod while nobody else is looking, have said, I can know it up here, but when I go to work on Monday, sometimes it's hard to live that out in my actions. Yeah? Materialism does not equal contentment. How many times do you have to hear somebody, like I, I, I've heard young people say this, and I used to fall in this camp. You would hear somebody like really, really wealthy, maybe in an interview or something, they would say, listen, money can't buy. And then people who don't have a lot of money, like me, would say like, well, that's easy for the guy with a billion dollars to say, right? But we have these cliches in our, in our world, and we, we say things like this, and this is what the Bible is saying, is it's not that money is bad. And it's not that you shouldn't have money, it's that money should never have you. That you should never be shackled by it in a way that it, gives, it becomes a master of, of everything you do, where you set the course of your life to get more and more and more. Because this is what Hebrews is saying. It will never make you content. It says, be content with what you have. And when it says you, it's not just talking about you, you, you individually, it's talking about us collectively. Is that making sense to you? So here's the deal. If somebody among us is lacking, what are we, not me, but we, supposed to do collectively? 
we come together, we rally, and we meet the needs of people. So when it says, be content with what you, that's you, plural, all of you have. I think this is what Hebrews is saying. Collectively, we have everything we need to be the community that we're called to be. It says, be content with what you have. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're living in this world. Um, I just saw this. This used to be a joke, but then I saw um, one of those billboards on a bus station. You know the ones that like rolls up? It looks like it's rolling up, but it's actually digital. You know what I'm talking about? Um, it said something like meeting all your retail therapy needs. <laughs> South Coast Plaza. There you have it. it was, no, no, it was literally an ad for it. it. I'm not making this up. It was literally an ad. How many of you have heard the phrase retail therapy before? This used to be like an under, under like ground joke, like, oh, man, that person shops too much. They're like a retail therapist or something. Now it's just out in the open. Are you looking for contentment this Christmas season? Do you feel lost? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel like there's a hole in your heart? Well, South Coast Plaza has a plan for you. You should bust out the credit card and just go buy a bunch of stuff. That will fill the hole in your heart, won't it? You can try. Hebrews says it will not lead to contentment. There is only one way to find contentment, he says. And that's in the acceptance that the hole in your heart is Christ-shaped and only he can fill it. And so this is what it says. So we, plural, can confidently say, this is in our time of need, in the moment where we think, man, I could really use a few extra bucks. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is what he's saying. He's not saying go quit your job and just depend on the generosity of others. Um, he's saying work hard. The Bible is clear. Work hard. Work with integrity. Work with character. Receive a paycheck for what you've earned. And then live with integrity with it. Use it to, to benefit the body. Don't run away from money as though it's bad, but use it as a tool to bring glory to God's kingdom. And be very careful, he says, that you don't become its slave. Make sure that money does not become your master. If you're taking notes, I, I was writing this down. I, I was thinking about money and sex and the way that our culture has thrust it upon us and saying, like, this is who you are and this is how you live out who you're created to be. And I wrote this, that where we find purpose or where we look for contentment matters. So will we seek and trust God's provision or will we, will we look elsewhere? And I got to tell you that looking elsewhere has never been more convenient and easy, has it? You can jump on the internet on your phone right now and you could look for contentment and somebody will sell it to you. Verse 7 continues. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their uh, way of life and imitate their faith. So three things. Remember, consider, and imitate. This is what it says. Remember your leaders. This is, um, this is you saying that I will not lose sight of the people that I have said I will fall under your care and I want to entrust some of my spiritual health to you. Remember, consider. Consider their outcome of the way of their life. This is the open book of your leadership and that includes me, Pastor Scott, Danny, Ben, anybody here that is in leadership, deacons, pastors, uh, staff, anyone. This is the open book, of, and it's saying this. You are welcome and you are invited to inspect the fruit of our lives. Does that sound scary to you? It sounds scary to me. <laughs> this is not perfection. This is not that if you come digging in Andy's life that you're going to find perfection because you will not. 
But what it's saying is you are not bound to be here under the care of these pastors and these staff if you don't want to. Minus maybe a couple teenagers in the room. Uh, everyone's here voluntarily. Blink twice if you're here under... <laughs> Now, that would be a cultural twist, right? I was kidnapped and they forced me to go to church. <laughs> you're here voluntarily. And I think what Hebrews is saying is that you can come and go as you wish, but if you're going to be in a community, there is leadership. The leadership is ultimately Jesus and the people that Jesus has called. And those people, you have the full freedom to inspect their lives and say, well, wait a second, I'm not following a leader who has no fruit in their life. You get to inspect the outcome of the way of their life. And if you find that to be in conjunction with the Bible, imitate their faith. If you're taking notes, I wrote this down, that who we take direction from matters. We are confused. Uh, we accept direction and wisdom from all sorts of places. Will we agree as followers of Jesus that we will go to godly sources for our wisdom? Now, I was thinking about this, and I've I've made this observation before, but it says true now as ever. There is a few remaining book stores with brick and mortar. Did you guys know that? You can buy books like in real life, not just on Amazon. If you walk into, uh, say, a Barnes & Noble, have you been to a Barnes & Noble before? There is a huge section, and it's called Spirituality and Religion. You've ever been to that section before? And I can picture this one. I, I used to live in San Diego. I can remember this. Um, it was a, actually a pretty large section. It was two long, long aisles of shelves, both sides. And about this much was like Christian theology and Bibles. The rest of it was um, spirituality for dummies and spirituality for dummies 2.0 and new age religious movements and finding uh, your inner healing and all of these sorts of things. Now, I used to think this was so dumb that it was there. But it dawned on me, Barnes & Noble does not put books on the shelf and give up shelf space to things that don't sell. Did you know that? They're not in the business of just putting all sorts of books that nobody cares about on the shelves and letting them sit there and accumulate dust. So why do those books have all the shelf space? Because people buy them. And I was thinking about this. Because the idea is, that we all are longing for something. The majority of you sitting here are, are saying, I'm longing for something, and I recognize that Jesus is the answer to my longing, and so I'm going to pursue him with all my life. But that's not the common cultural norm in our world. But what is common is everybody is searching. They're looking for contentment. They're looking for meaning. And guess who is willing to give it to them? People who write books. And they write books, and it's things like this. I, I looked it up on Barnes & Noble. Here's the uh, first. Um, it wasn't the title. It was the subtitle. It was um, uh, Inner Healing, Secret Techniques to Unlock Your Inner Potential. How many of you would say, deep down, I would like to unlock my potential? I, I would say that the Bible wants you to unlock your potential. It wants you to submit your whole life to God so that God can, can show you who you were created to be and you can live it out. But do you see that it's just one degree of of difference here. And so if we're not careful, we could get sucked into something that sounds awfully Christian. We get sucked into it. We could watch it on YouTube. We could begin reading the books and we could start to one degree of separation and all of a sudden we are way over here. All because we were just looking for direction and we went to the wrong 
place. I think this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, is if you are content in Jesus and you feel called to a place, a community, you should check in on your leaders. You should make sure that they are are men and women of faith and integrity. And if they are, you should say, you know what, I'm going to go to them in times of need for wisdom. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen? Amen. If you're a a theology nerd, this word is immutability. In fact, um, John Calvin picked up on this in in his catechism. He wrote this, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So from the very beginning of Christian faith and Jewish faith, there is a doctrine that God does not change. His character is the same now and forever. Would you agree? Now, if you're reading along in Hebrews chapter 13, it might dawn on you that this seems a little bit out of place. Like, all of a sudden, we're back to this theological argumentation. I thought you were trying to tell us what to do. But I love what he does because he he sets this up. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9 is the contrast, and he says this. So do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This is what he's saying. He's saying that there's going to be a a temptation and people are going to accuse you. They're going to say, oh, you're a Jesus follower. Well, that's like some new age, weird religious thing. Right? Remember when Hebrews is written. Jesus has only been uh, raised from the dead for maybe a couple decades at this point. And people are saying, oh, this Jesus thing, it's brand new. The author of Hebrews says, no, it's not. The truth of Jesus has been rooted in eternity from the beginning of time. What you believe in is eternal. It is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And because of that, you should be very, very weary or wary of people who show up and say, hey, I've unlocked the secrets of Christianity or Judaism or some religious spiritual movement in your life. How many of you have ever flipped on like late night TV and you see like the spiritual guru? I always wonder like I'm not into this kind of thing at all. Just there is a program that I saw not super long ago, palm reading on TV. I thought I I don't I'm not into palm reading, but wouldn't you think like someone would actually have to like look at your palms to, to con you? But like, no, they'll con you like you could just FaceTime them and show them like that's a real thing. He's saying, beware of things that show up and say, hey, I've unlocked some secret truth. How many of you would say, that would be a red alert for me if somebody said from this pulpit, hey, I've unlocked a secret truth. Have, Have you noticed a commitment for us to preach verse by verse? It's not because it's like super cool, because it's not. It's a safeguard that we don't get to cherry pick verses out of the Bible to mean things that they don't mean. It's a safeguard to say that there is nothing new under the sun in the the words of Ecclesiastes. If somebody got up here and said, hey, I've been reading Hebrews and I actually have a totally different meaning than anyone's ever had, the first thing you should say is, really? After 2,000 years of of monks and priests and pastors and uh, wise people reading this and interpreting it and talking about it and preaching it, all of a sudden in 2022, right here in Orange, huh? You came up with the true meaning. That should raise an alarm bell. And the author of Hebrews says, to be the community God called us to, we should be able to call that out and say, weird. Got it? Everybody practice. Weird. Weird. Yeah, weird. He says, why? Because you should be strengthened by God's grace. Your heart 
is strengthened by God's grace, not some new age, new motivational technique. It's strengthened by God's grace. And then he uses this example. He says, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted them. Uh, the main point is just simply this. In the ancient world, a lot of cultic activity always had a food ritual, um, whether it be uh, uh, like cutting human blood and putting it on food or a sacrifice of an animal that they would eat in a certain way together. And so he's, he's just saying, look, those things don't benefit people at all. What will benefit you is being strengthened by the grace of God. So if you're taking notes, I, I just wrote, wrote it down this way. That what we allow to shape us matters. Is the gospel at the center of our lives? Or is it a condiment that just gets sprinkled on the top? I guess another way of saying it is this. Do we go out into the world and we look for meaning, we look for purpose in all sorts of different ways from Monday to Saturday, and then on Sunday we're like, oh, this is my Christian faith day, and I'm going to have a little bit of that on top. That is not Christian faith. The author of Hebrews is saying the gospel is central to everything that we do and everything that we are. So what shapes us matters. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. A uh, quick question for you. Who, who remembers Exodus? Who remembers all that tabernacle talk? Like you got it memorized. Okay, cool. Laura Gibb, I saw that hand. I'm going to... Um, all of this is just to say this whole next chunk is about the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. And I sat in Exodus. I took rigorous notes. And guess what? I couldn't recall what any of this meant. So I had to go look it up too. So if you're thinking like, oh, no, I'm going to get called out, that's okay. He says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Hmm. What does that mean? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. How many of you are like, what? Anybody? I read this about 10 times, and every time my what got like more and more secure in there. I was like, what does this mean? Thank goodness there's nothing new under the sun. You can, you can read. You can study. There are faithful men and women who can break open the scripture for us. And so this is, this is what I think the scripture is talking about. Um, there is a, a Jewish holiday. In fact, it's the highest of all Jewish holidays. It's called Yom Kippur. It is the day of, anybody? Atonement. And on this day, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the place where, where God's presence dwelt, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat for the sins of all the people. I had totally forgotten this. But once the blood was sprinkled, the body of the sacrifice was symbolically taken outside of the camp to be sacrificed and burned. The thought was that you were removing anything and everything that was defiling. You were putting it on the animal. You were offering it to God by sprinkling of the blood. Then you were taking the body outside the camp as a, an illustration for God removing all defilement and sin from your midst. Does that make sense? And so this is what he's picking up on. He's saying, we have an altar uh, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's saying that the high priests no longer have this special status card that they get to play. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. Okay, we're on the same page. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this is what he does. He picks up on the, the great sacrifice of Yom Kippur, the one that uh, atones for all the sins of the people for the calendar year. And he says, Jesus was also sacrificed outside the camp. Except he didn't symbolically carry the sins of the camp outside to remove defilement from the camp. He literally took the sin, removed it from the camp on the cross. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So here's what, he, what they're saying. You ready for this? You don't have to go to the temple anymore. Now that clearly didn't land with you because you're not a first century Jew. But I want you to imagine this for a second. Imagine you were raised in a Jewish world. You went to school to learn the Torah. If you were a young man, many of you memorized the entire Torah. There's no such thing as religion and politics and family life. They are all one thing. Every single day you woke up and you oriented your body towards the temple to thank God for his presence in that temple. Every time you did anything wrong, you were reminded of the great day of atonement that happens in the temple because God's living presence resides in the Holy of Holies. And then you come to faith in Jesus, that he is the Messiah that was promised throughout the scriptures. And now you don't have to go to the temple anymore. How's your mom going to take that? How's your cousin down the street who's like really high-ho on uh, Jewish theology going to handle this? What is the outcome going to be? The author of Hebrews says this, we can go to him who's outside the camp. If you want access to the presence of God, you can go outside the camp. Do you know what he's saying? You can access the presence of God anywhere. But you will bear the reproach that he endured. Why? Because for these people, for them to abandon their temple theology that God's presence dwells in the temple, and you're like, oh no, yeah, I'm still Jewish. I'm a Messianic Jew. I believe Jesus was the, uh, the Messiah that was promised, and I can come into God's presence anywhere. I don't need the Holy of Holies or the, the sacrifice at Yom Kippur anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. People are going to be upset. Children will be disowned from their homes for this, literally. People will be kicked to the curb. In some instances, even the elderly who accept Jesus will just be thrown out into the streets to die because they are not allowed in our Jewish home anymore. And he says, we can go outside the camp to him, but we will bear the reproach that he endured. This is a question that I wrote for myself. Where we go in times of need matters. Now, I'm not trying to uh, poo-poo this place. This place is beautiful, would you agree? This place, as Danny says, has tears in the carpet. This is a place that people have repented of their sins. This has been the place where, like, like literally I'm looking and, like, U-turns in people's lives hap have happened, like, right here. Worship has happened here. Authentic, true friendship and prayer for one another has happened here. That is a, a beautiful thing, and we are going to protect that culture that we have here. But the author of Hebrews is really clear. Do you know that you don't need this place for that? If us as a people group were meeting in a, a park or a, a parking lot, we could still have all of those things. Because God's presence is not confined to one single place. And he's saying that if, if that is the hang-up for people, 
and they're going to come for you because of that. Remember, he's writing into a, a Jewish audience who holds the temple near and dear. He's saying, just continue to go to him and endure the reproach that is coming your way. So where we go in our time, uh, times of need matters. So will we accept? Well, I think I have. Do we recognize that God's presence is with us everywhere? Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the kingdom of God in its fullness. He's saying that as we endure the reproach that comes, that our hope, we can cast our gaze on the city to come. That's the kingdom of God. Verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do uh, good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is what he's saying. He's saying that here's our response to all of these things. You ready for this? Worship God. And he gives us a couple ways to do it. He quotes uh, Hosea chapter 14. He says, may the, the words or the fruit of your lips. That's literally singing. How many of you love to sing your praise to God? How many of you would say, I love to pretend, but I'm lip syncing because I have a terrible voice? <laughs> How many of you would say, I have a terrible voice and my neighbor can move? So he's saying, no matter what you've endured, no matter what the culture has thrust upon you and pushed on you, no matter what family members and community members have derided you for or looked down on you for, sing your praise to God. And then he says this, that worship is not just singing, because he says, do not neglect to do good. That's pretty general, isn't it? Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What is a sacrifice to these people? A sacrifice is worship. So how do you worship God? The whole thing is your act of worship. That's what the Bible says. Your whole life, you're singing in church. You should belt it out. Even if you have a terrible voice, this is not choir. There's a reason some people have microphones like Bailey because they can drown us out. You know? <laughs> we sing our praise to God. That's part of our worship. But the rest of our worship is this, that we do good. What does that mean? It means everything. It means when you're in the checkout line. It means when someone cuts you off in traffic, right? You just turn it into a thumbs up instead, right? <laughs> Every opportunity is an opportunity to worship God. How do you do it? You do good. He says, you do good and you share what you have. You live your life like this. You just live your life like this. I have plenty. Why? We already said this because God is my provider. I, I don't have to want. I don't have to be afraid. I get to live like this. Oh, you need something? Well, here's what I have. I don't know if it's enough, but you can have it. When we live like this, when we do good, when we sing our praise to God, we are worshiping God with our whole lives. This is what we're called to. We're not called just to show up on ch at church on Sunday, rubber stamp, done, check mark. We did our Sunday thing. Maybe I'll re-listen to the sermon on Wednesday and call it good. We're called to go to work tomorrow. We're called to, to show hospitality at Christmas dinner. We're, we're called to endure even when people come after us or say nasty things. That is what we're called to do. And we're not to neglect. That's how we worship. We're not to neglect singing, doing good, and sharing what we have. I wrote this, that how we worship matters. 
Do we just show up for Sunday worship or do we treat our whole lives as an opportunity to worship? Now, I, I want to recognize this because I'm really guilty. I often write these questions to myself and when I go back, I recognize that they are more or less yes or no questions. Do you notice that? How many of you would say that sometimes I worship God with my whole life? How many of you would say sometimes I just go to church and I rubber stamp that I'm done for the week? Not in my mind, but with my actions, that's how I live. How many of you would say, yeah, guilty? I think we're all in that boat. The boat is not, oh, if I don't get it right every time. Because listen, where we fall into if we go down that path is this, that somehow I'm going to earn God's favor and salvation if I just do it all right. And that is not what Hebrews has preached for one second. We are all in this boat together. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it totally, completely wrong, but we do it together. We encourage one another. We say, hey, your whole life is an act of worship. Get back on your feet. Repent to God. God will put you where your gaze is down the path that he set before you, and let's just walk it out together. Let's just keep going. Let's keep praying. Let's keep repenting. Let's keep worshiping. Let's keep giving. Let's keep enduring, because that's what's set out before us. Amen? Okay, this is... Um, this is the hard part because we don't skip verses. Obey your leader and submit to them. How many of you love that submit talk? <laughs> yeah, we're laughing, but we're honest, aren't we? Nobody likes to submit. I want to be careful with what I say, but this word obey, I, I think obey and submit is a, a reactionary phrase. In Greek, the word obey is not quite so sharp. It's just to have confidence in. The idea to have confidence in somebody and to submit to them is to say, listen, I've inspected the fruit of your life, whether it's your, your teaching or you've shown up for me in the hospital, you've visited me at my worst times. You, you said, you know what, I'll take time out of my day and I'll make sure that we can sit and pray together and counsel together. Let's read and study the word together. I've inspected the fruit of your life and to submit is to say, not that I'm going to trust you in every single thing, it's that I'm going to trust you to point me towards Jesus when I'm having a hard time finding him in my life. A great Christian leader, I think, does this. It says uh, that you can come to me and I will walk with you towards this, the throne of grace. Not that somehow I have all the answers, but in your worst times, I'll direct you to the right place. It's not me, it's Jesus. So it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give account. This is what Hebrews is saying, is that there are people in your life that will have to answer for how well they did at caring for you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is what he's saying, that you would uh, come to, like, say, a place like Bridge Community Church and say, I want to be a member at Bridge Community Church. A member at Bridge Community Church is somebody voluntarily saying, I want to fall under the care of the pastoral and staff here at the church. That's if I get sick, I want one of you to visit me in the hospital. And you're allowed to expect something like that. I, I want people to pray for me. I want people to challenge me. And I'm going to submit myself to, to the church in that way. What Hebrews is saying, you can't do that and then whine and complain about it when somebody says, hey, I, I really want to call this out of your life and bring you back into repentance and following Jesus. He says, you can't submit and then groan about it. Let them do it in joy, for that would be no advantage to you. Like, you burn bridges with people when you say, like, yeah, I'm all in, and then in your actions you show that you're not. And he says this, pray for us, 
for we are sure that we have a clear uh, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things so he's just saying this pray for your leaders pray that they would continue to operate out of a clear conscience and they would continue to act out with a desire to act honorably in all things I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. It's just the author saying, I, I want to come visit you soon. So as we uh, wrap up, if you're a note taker, I've been noticing people take their cell phones and take like a snapshot. So I took all the takeaways and put them on one final slide if you are somebody who likes to do that. As we uh, wrap up the book of Hebrews, you may notice that there's still some text left if you have your Bible open. And I'd encourage you to, to read the rest of it. It's just kind of a personal exit out of the letter. But as we wrap up and we head into our Christmas week, I want to just invite you to, to stand with me. And I was thinking about how do we end a really awesome series of 15 or 16 weeks in the book of Hebrews? And I, um, to be honest, I was kind of caught in thinking like, what would be a really creative, fun, upbeat way to do it? And I was praying and um, I told Jackie, who's doing slides back there, that I, I felt like God gave me no answer, and then gave me an answer right before I came in here today. And this is how I want to end our series in Hebrews. I want to end it the exact same way that the author of Hebrews wanted to end his own letter. So would, would you just close your eyes, and if you're comfortable, just maybe put out your hands like you want to receive something. This is what the author of Hebrews wanted the people he was writing to to have at the end. He says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought Jesus the Lord from the death, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, all things through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. God, thank you. Thank you that your word encourages us. Thank you that it refines us, it searches our heart, and it calls out the dark areas that we have. Thank you that you want to shape in us people who are your ambassadors in the world, as Bryant prayed earlier. We want to walk in that. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't walk a fake walk where we pretend we got it all together, but we would use this place as a, a rallying point where we say, you know what, I, I got it right and I got it terribly wrong this week. Would you pray for me as I step back out into my Monday? We love you. We want to be difference makers in the world. So would you equip us? Would you motivate us? Would you give us the discipline we need to walk out being a disciple of Jesus? Not, not just uh, on the big days like Christmas, but every single day of the year. So we love you. We give you this time. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for all that it's done to enrich our lives. Would you go before us into this Christmas week? Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. 